Tonight we'll be looking at the metaphysical cultic origins of the word faith movement and the standard doctrines which the faith preachers teach that deviate from historical Christianity. I, I think you'll be able to see tonight by the end of our time together that the prosperity gospel is indeed a different gospel altogether. So where did the word faith movement begin? It began with a man named Phineas Parkhurst Quimby. Quimby, we could call the great grandfather of the word faith movement. Quimby was the father of a metaphysical cult known as New Thought. And when I say metaphysical, that's a big word, but all it really means is beyond the physical realm, beyond what we can see and touch here. And when I say cult, I mean any group or sect that may call itself Christian, yet compromises or denies some of the fundamentals of the faith. Mormonism is a cult. Jehovah's Witnesses belong to a cult. And Roman Catholicism is a theological cult. Not a sociological cult, not a Jim Jones drink the Kool-Aid kind of a cult, but it is a theological cult because it compromises and denies some of the fundamental tenets of historical Christianity. And Quimby was the father of this metaphysical cult known as New Thought. New Thought essentially held that whatever you think about, you will attract to yourself. So if you think positive, happy thoughts, your positive, happy thoughts will go out into the ether somewhere and will engage universal laws of attraction and the universe will bring positive, happy things to you. Conversely, if you think negative thoughts, then your negative thoughts will go out into the ether and the universe will bring negative things to you. And it held that sickness and disease is rooted in negative thinking. So if you're sick, it's because you've been thinking sick thoughts. He was a student of occultism, hypnosis, and parapsychology. His theoretical formulation served as the basis for what is today known as Christian science. Mary Baker Eddy uh, took some of Quimby's teachings, developed them a bit further, and from that formed what is today known as Christian science. You've probably heard of Christian science. Christian science is very poorly named, by the way, because it's not Christian and it's not scientific. Kind of like grape nuts. You know, they're not grape and they're not nuts. Well, Christian science is not Christian and it's not scientific, but there's a lot of Christian science overtones in the modern word faith movement, one of which is the denial of physical symptoms when it comes to sickness and disease. If you have a friend or a family member who is in this movement to one degree or another, you might have noticed that if they get sick, they deny that they're sick. You know, maybe they've got a cold and their eyes are watering, their nose is running, they're congested the whole nine yards, it's obvious they have a cold. But if you ask them, well, how are you feeling? Oh, I'm fine. You know, they, they don't acknowledge because if they speak it, then whatever they speak will bring it into existence. And they take it to such an extreme like, I've literally heard some of them say, you should never say, oh, that just tickled me to death because you might kill yourself. I mean, they literally, I, I've, I, that's not an exaggeration. I've heard them say that. So uh, Quimby was the father, great, great grandfather of the word faith movement. And there's lots of Christian science overtones, new thought overtones in the modern prosperity gospel. As evidence of that, watch this from Andrew Womack. If you are reaping sickness, it's because you've thought sickness. It may not be that you've thought, all right, I want to be sick. But you've thought things that allow sickness to dominate you, such things as, well, I'm only human. I'm just a man. It's flu season. I've got to get sick because it's flu season. You may not have sat there and have thought, I want the flu, but you've thought things that made you inferior to flu and that made you only human. You were denying and not focused on who you are in Christ, that no plague will come nigh your dwelling. And you have thought things that made you susceptible to Satan stealing your health. So if you're sick, it's because you've been thinking sick thoughts. Essek W. Kenyon, we could call the grandfather of the word faith movement. 
Kenyon had very clear ties to the metaphysical cults, New Age, New Thought movements especially. Now, Kenyon was not wrong on everything that he taught, but he did have a number of points of error, including the following. He, he taught that God created not ex nihilo, not out of nothing, but rather God created by speaking faith-filled words. And we as believers can do the same thing. He taught that when God created, when he spoke, his words were containers of a literal, tangible substance called faith, hence word of faith. And everything that is in existence today is actually made out of faith. According to Kenyon, if you broke matter down to its basic components, you wouldn't find atoms and molecules. You'd find faith. The pew that you're sitting on right now is made out of faith. The car that you're driving, the house that you live in, it's made out of faith. And we as believers, we can use our own words of faith to speak things into existence to create our own physical reality. He held that humans took on the nature of Satan in the fall. When this happened, they forfeited to Satan their supposed deity and made Satan the legal God of planet Earth. Dear friends, Satan is not the legal God of planet Earth. God is the legal God of planet Earth. The Earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. He held that Jesus died not only a physical death, but died a spiritual death. He held that there were actually two deaths of Jesus, one physical and one spiritual. And when Jesus died on the cross, the work of the atonement was not finished. It had just begun. When Jesus died on the cross, then he went to hell, suffered, tortured by demons, died a spiritual death, ceased to be God, and had to be reborn. That Jesus actually had to get saved. And that is where the atonement of our sins took place. Not on the cross, but down in hell. And finally, health and wealth are obtainable by the believer's positive confession. So if you need money, you speak it into existence. If you need healing, you speak it into existence. Kenneth Hagin is the father of the modern word faith movement. And despite Kenneth Hagin's teaching that no Christian should die until he's at least 120 years old, you see Kenneth Hagin didn't quite make it. Um, now, like all of the faith preachers, they claim that much of what they teach, they receive directly through divine revelation knowledge. And this is their way of insulating themselves against biblical criticism. And they'll say, well, if you can't find what I'm teaching you in the Bible, uh, don't worry about it, you see, because I have it from the highest authority. Jesus himself came and gave me these teachings. So if, if you can't find it in the word, don't worry about it. It's okay. I got it from Jesus. Well, Hagen claimed that Jesus physically appeared to him on eight different occasions throughout the course of his life. And on one of these occasions, Jesus supposedly gave Kenneth Hagen these exact words. According to Kenneth Hagin, Jesus dictated to him these exact words. It's interesting, however, that Jesus apparently bears a striking resemblance to Isaac W. Kenyon. If you can see, it's practically word for word identical. Hagin did not get this from Jesus. Hagin plagiarized Isaac W. Kenyon. And you can see it's, it's word for word almost. So the faith preachers are very fond of claiming divine origin for what they teach. But as you can see, the origins are not nearly so supernatural. Now, I want us to look at the doctrines of the word faith movement. We'll begin tonight by looking at the doctrine of positive confession, their belief that we can speak things into existence. Watch these clips. Look at me, say, 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 all, all of you. Say, there's power in me to speak life and death. You call what you have. You say what you want. And I'm here to tell you, I know that I know that I know that as these programs are airing, I, I'm speaking something into existence. Amen. I'm speaking something into existence. If that sounds eerily like God's act of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, 
that's because it is. Dear friends, only God can speak things into existence. That is not an ability that you and I have. But the faith preachers blur that line between God the creator and us his created. They demote God to make him look human. And then in turn, they deify man and they make us look like God. And in case you're thinking, oh, well, you're just taking them out of context. I mean, they don't actually teach that we can speak things into existence just like God did. I mean, they don't really teach that, do they? Yeah, actually they do. This is a tweet from Creflo Dollar. Creflo Dollar, undoubtedly the most aptly named of the prosperity preachers. Creflo Dollar said this, he says, as spiritual beings who possess the nature of God, we have the ability to speak things into existence just like God did. So yes, they do teach this. They absolutely do. Listen to this conversation between Paul and Jan Crouch and Kenneth Copeland. Does God use faith? Sure. Now, now see, here's a sore spot. There are those not with who you. say. No, not, not with you. I'm not sore at God at all. I don't think he's sore at me. I don't know if I know anything. No, but the, the critics say God is God. He doesn't have to have faith. He doesn't exercise faith. He doesn't use faith. He's God. He's the object of faith. Oh, wait a minute. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. Did you catch that? Uh, the first thing Kenneth Copeland said, now, wait a minute, why, I don't know why God soared at me. I haven't done anything to him. How arrogant. How arrogant. But then he says, now, wait a minute, wh what's that mean? God is the object of our faith. I don't know what that means. And then you hear Jan Crouch say, well, I don't either. Friends, that's not meat. That's milk. The fact that God is the object of our faith, I mean, that's first grade Sunday school stuff. You don't get more basic than that. And it's astonishing to me that these people who claim to be our leaders in Christianity don't understand the elementary truth that God is the object of our faith. Because you see, in their system, God's not the object of faith. Faith is the object of faith. You see, in the prosperity gospel, faith is not placed in God. Faith is a force that you direct at God to make him do whatever you want him to do. And it's really ironic when you think about it that these people who call themselves faith preachers have a fundamental misunderstanding of what faith actually is. And in case you're thinking, well, I'm taking them out of context. They don't really teach that we should have faith in our faith, do they? Yes, they do. This from uh, Jesse Duplantis. Jesse Duplantis says, the Bible says that every man has been given the measure of faith. Have faith in your faith, not faith in God. Have faith in your faith and step over into the faith zone, whatever that is. How strong are our words? Well, so powerful that if you don't like the weather, well, you can just change it. Watch this from Gloria Copeland. You know, you're the you're supposed to control the weather. I mean, Ken's the primary weatherman at our house, but when he's not there, I do it. You need to see what's happening out there. So it's like they have on at the weather, like on the news. I mean, he's got the computer, got the current weather on it and all that for flying. So uh, sometimes I'll hear something. I'll hear the thunder start. Maybe he'll still be asleep. And I say, Ken, you need to do something about this. And knowing that, but you are the one that has authority over the weather. One day, Ken and Pat Boone, we were in Hawaii at their house, and we were, they were sitting outside, and there was a weather spout out over the ocean. And that's like a tornado, except it hits the water. And so they were sitting there, and they just watched it, rebuked it, never did anything. One day, I was in the airplane in the back, 
and my little brother was in the back with me, and Ken was up front flying, and we were not in the weather because we don't fly bad weather, but we, we could see the weather over here. And I looked out the window, and that tornado came down just like this, down toward the ground, and Ken said, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. You get back up there. Well, this is how I learned how to talk to tornadoes. I saw this. And that tornado went, whoop, 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 whoop. Even while I was watching and my little brother was not a devout Christian at that time, and that was really good for him to see. So you're the weatherman. You get out there or the weather woman, whichever it is, and you talk to that thing. And you tell it, you're not coming here. I command you to dissipate. And you get back up there in Jesus' name. Glory to God. That, that, I want to charge the extra. Now, that really doesn't even need or deserve a comment, but if you'll indulge me, I'll offer a couple of them real quickly. The first thing, did you notice how she says we can control the weather, but we don't fly in bad weather? Why not? I mean, if you can control the weather, fly through whatever you want to fly through, you know, just talk to it before you get there. So, you know, just a little common sense goes a long way in clearing a lot of this stuff up. But aside from that, if it is true, and that's a huge if, but if it is true that Gloria Copeland and all of her faith friends, and they all claim to be able to do this, Creflo Dollar, Jesse Duplantis, they all claim to be able to control the weather, Rod Parsley, if they can control the weather, then I would submit to you that they should be charged with thousands of cases of negligent homicide every year. Because every year all around the world, there are thousands of people who lose their lives in weather-related disasters. Wildfires that could be put out with some rain, tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, droughts, blizzards, all around the world, thousands of people. But I'm not really that hard-nosed. I don't actually think that these prosperity preachers should be charged with negligent homicide. And the reason I don't is because they can't do what they claim they can do. They can't control the weather. There is only one who controls the weather, and that is God. This from John Hagee. Oh, John Hagee. He's not word of faith, is he? Oh, yes, he is. I believe that when a person says, I wish I were dead, he or she invites the spirit of death to invade his or her life. When an unhappy wife says, my marriage is a failure, she is pronounced the doom of this relationship. When a pregnant mother says, I don't want this baby, she is pronouncing the termination of her pregnancy or a curse upon the life of a child yet to be born. Speech is that powerful. Is it really? So according to John Hagee, if a pregnant mother, for whatever reason, simply verbalizes the words, I don't want this baby, she can actually kill her baby in utero. Where is the sovereignty of God in all of this? The prosperity preachers have no concept of God's sovereignty, none. The God of the prosperity gospel, that's a little g God, is a very weak, very indecisive, very effeminate God, and it is not the God of the Bible. You remember the account in Luke's gospel of the angel giving the announcement to uh, Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah, that they were going to have a baby? Remember that? And uh, they were older in years, right? Advanced in years. And when Zechariah heard about this, uh, he kind of questioned it a little bit, right? And what did God do in response to Zechariah's questioning? Closed his mouth, right? Made him a mute. For a very interesting take on why God closed Zechariah's mouth, this from Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen says, why did God take away his speech? It's because God knew that Zechariah's negative words would cancel out his plan. See, he knows the power of our words. He knows that we prophesy our future, and he knew Zechariah's own negative words would stop his plan. Wow. So according to Joel Osteen, 
God was up in heaven looking down and he saw Zechariah making negative confessions and God just went into a panic. Oh my goodness, you know, what am I ever going to do? I, I wasn't counting on this. And so in a last ditch effort to save his plan of redemption, God had to reach down and close Zechariah's mouth and make him a mute. Whew, boy, that was a close one. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. No concept of God's heart. This from just a couple weeks ago. Joel Osteen, in a sermon entitled Miracles in Your Mouth, he says, Our words have creative power. When we speak something out, we're giving it the right to come to pass. There is healing in your mouth. The miracle is in your mouth. So whatever you want, you just need to speak it. It's all up to you. Speak it into existence. This is a New Age book. Subtitle, uh, Supreme Influence. Subtitle, Change Your Life with the Power of the Language You Use. Nothing Christian about this book. It's New Age. Does not pretend to be Christian. Now, for comparison, let me show you a quote-unquote Christian book by Joyce Meyer. Change your words, change your life, understanding the power of every word you speak. You see, it's the same thing. This is not Christian. This is cultic. Cultic doctrine wrapped in some Christian lingo to make it appear to be Christian when it, in fact, is not. Our next doctrine, the little God's doctrine. All of the faith preachers teach that if you are a Christian, you are, in fact, a little God. Watch this from Creflo Dollar. Now, in verse 26 and verse 27, God now submits himself to this principle of everything producing after its own kind. And in verse 26 and 27, let's read it out loud. Read it, read. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now that's interesting because if everything produces after its own kind, we now see God producing man. And if God now produces man, and everything produces after its own kind. If horses get together, they produce what? And if dogs get together, they produce what? If cats get together, they produce what? But if the Godhead gets together and say, let us make man, then what are they producing? They're producing gods. Now, I got to hit this thing real hard in the very beginning because I ain't got time to go through all this. But I'm going to say to you right now, you are gods, little g. You are gods because you came from God and you are gods. You're not just human. The only human part about you is this physical body that you live in. The real me is just like God. The real me is just like God. Blasphemy. Dear friends, when the Bible says that God created man in his image, that means that as human beings, you and I are the pinnacle of God's creation. We're the pinnacle of his creation. We have the potential and the capacity through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ to know God. None of the other created order has that privilege and ability. Um, I grew up with dogs, 
uh, black labs, most of them. I love dogs. A few years ago, my wife got me a little dog. It's not a lab. It's a little, it's a little frou-frou dog, but it is technically a dog. And, uh, and you know, I've, I, I wanted a big dog. She didn't want a dog at all, and this was a compromise. So, uh, but, you know, I've come to love the socks off that little thing. But you know what? The greatest, smartest dog in the world will never know God because dogs are not created in God's image. We are. We have the potential and the capacity through a saving relationship with Christ to know God, but that does not mean that we are God's. The Bible is very clear. There is only one God, and he is a jealous God who will not share his glory with another. And if I remember my Bible correctly, wasn't the desire to be just like God kind of what led to the whole fall thing in the first place? Isn't that ironic? The very first temptation, which led to the very first sin, which led to this whole fallen state in the first place, the desire to be just like God is what the faith preachers teach as truth. They want you to believe it. The very thing that led to the fallen state in the first place. How ironic. Who else in the Bible wanted to be just like God? Lucifer. Satan did. He wanted the worship that God was getting for himself, and he rose up in rebellion against God, and it got him and a third of the angels along with him kicked out of heaven. And so this little God's doctrine is quite literally, quite literally a doctrine of demons. Doctrine of demons. So I want us now to look at what the faith preachers teach about the doctrine of the fall. This will kind of help us put the pieces of the puzzle together, why they teach what they teach. Number one, they teach that Adam was an exact duplicate of God. Adam was not a lot like God. He was not a little like God. Adam literally was God, that God literally reproduced himself in Adam. And Adam was a carbon copy of Yahweh. Well, we all know what happened, right? Adam sinned, which, of course, begs the question. If Adam was Yahweh and he sinned, was it Yahweh who sinned? You see, you carry these doctrines out to their logical conclusion, and you see how heretical they really are. But when Adam sinned, he lost his godhood, transferred it to Satan, when this happened, the real Yahweh God lost his legal right to planet Earth and was kicked out. So uh, there's nuances here and there, but according to classic word faith theology, the real Yahweh God is up there somewhere, but he's got no access to planet Earth. He's been kicked out, gone. See you later. Well, somebody has to fill that void, right? So Satan is all too eager to step up to the plate, and Satan becomes the legal God of planet Earth. As I said a moment ago, Satan is not the legal God of planet Earth. God is the legal God of planet Earth. Satan is referred to as the God of this age. Paul was making a theological point, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, but not the legal God of planet Earth. Well, guess what happens when a person gets saved? Guess what he gets back? Ah, he gets his Godhood back. He regains his deity. He becomes God again, just like Adam supposedly was before he fell. And this, dear friends, is why the faith preachers hold so tenaciously to health and wealth, because we're gods. And a god cannot be poor, and a god certainly cannot be sick. So many people think that this movement is just about health and wealth. You know, Rolex watches, private jets, and healing. No, that's just some of the bad, low-hanging fruit off of a rotten theological tree. It is a tree that is rotten and diseased and dead at its core. And health and wealth is just some of the bad fruit hanging off of it. But 
the allure of health and wealth is what makes this movement so appealing and yet so dangerous at the same time. Because the prosperity gospel essentially says this, come to Jesus because he'll make you rich and he'll heal your body. They appeal to two of the most basic and universal of all human desires. Most people want to be rich and almost everybody wants to be healed. You know, not many people want to be sick. There's a few people that just like the attention that comes with being sick and they think they're sick whether they are or not. But for most of us, if we had our druthers, we'd rather not be sick, right? And so the prosperity gospel says, well, if you'll just come to Jesus, then you can have it. So let me get this straight. You're telling me if I come to Jesus, if I ask Jesus into my heart, then God will make me rich and I'll never be sick again. <laughs> Sign me up, man. I like that, Jesus. If you got two of them, I'll, I'll take them both. But is that the real gospel? Or is the real gospel something a little bit more like this? Come to Jesus because you're a sinner. And because of your sin, the righteous wrath of God abides on you. And the only way to have that wrath removed is to repent of sins, turn from sins, and place your trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And then you will have heaven. But on this earth, we're not promised money. We're not promised healing. What are we promised? We're promised tribulation. We're promised persecution. What does the Bible say? Some of those who live godly in Christ Jesus may be persecuted. Is that what it says? All who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And dear friends, there are no exception clauses to that unless you live in the United States of America. Now, we don't live in Iran. We don't live in North Korea. We don't live in a country that, that actively, physically persecutes Christians, at least not yet. We may one day, but not yet. But if you're living godly in Christ Jesus, you should at least be suffering some soft persecution somewhere. And if you've never been persecuted at any level for your faith, then you're not living godly in Christ Jesus. But that's not as popular, you see, as saying, well, come to Jesus because you can be rich. You don't have to be sick anymore. If you come to Jesus for those reasons, you've come for the wrong reasons. You've trusted a false Jesus and a false gospel. The softening of sin. The softening of sin. You might notice that the prosperity preachers don't talk about sin a lot. But if they do, they kind of soften it. And sin is not something that you commit against a holy, righteous God. Rather, sin is something that just prevents you from having your best life now. Uh, they diminish it. Watch this from Joseph Prince and Joel Osteen. To do this, but you're getting the same kind of response, aren't you? Yes. People need and, and want. You know, the word repentance, uh, like Joel said, is from the Greek word metanoia, which literally means change your mind. And uh, every time, like Joel, well, me preaching the word, without using the word repentance sometimes, but people's minds are being changed all the time. From thinking this way negatively to thinking positively. So Joseph Prince says that the Greek word for repentance is metanoia. And you know what? He's right. That is the Greek word for repentance. And then he says the word metanoia means to change your mind. Guess what? Right again. That is what that word means. But then did you notice how he fleshed it out? He said, we may not use the word repentance. I mean, heaven forbid we actually use biblical terminology in our preaching. We wouldn't want to do that. So, so Joel and I, we may not use the word repentance, but we're, trust us, we're still teaching people to repent when they go from thinking negatively to thinking positively. 
That's not repentance. According to his definition of repentance, we could all repent simply by joining the Optimist Club. You know, just having a sunnier outlook on life. Everything's just sunshine and lollipops and unicorns all the time. That's not repentance. Metanoia does mean a change in mind, but genuine repentance comes when God grants repentance. And when God grants repentance, yes, our minds are changed, but everything about us is changed. Our desires are changed. Our affections are changed. And there is fruit in keeping with repentance. The Apostle Paul said, So, King Agrippa, I kept declaring that all men everywhere should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. That does not mean we perform deeds in order to repent. That's getting the cart before the horse. But when God grants repentance, there will be deeds in keeping with repentance. There will be evidence in your life that God has granted repentance. John the Baptist, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Dear friends, it's good to do a word study like, you know, metanoia or some other biblical word. That, that's good to do a word study and kind of break down the word and see what it means, its parts and all that. That can be good. That can be helpful. But the dictionary definition is not always the final arbiter of what a, a theological term means. Okay? Because it is the Holy Spirit of God who puts the biblical words in their proper context. And it is the context that determines the full meaning. The Holy Spirit determines the meaning of a word, not Webster's Dictionary or the lexicon. Look at how these words are used in context. Metanoia is far more than just changing your mind. Okay, look at it in context. Watch this from Todd White. This place on my life, the value was placed on my life was determined by the cost that was paid for me. See, the cross isn't just the revelation of my sin. It's the revealing of my value. Something underneath of that sin must have been a great value for heaven to go bankrupt to get me back. Mm -hmm. So Jesus paid such a high price for me on that tree. Mm -hmm. And when I see that, I see my value. So when I look at the cross, I can't sing that song, I'll never know how much it costs. I have to sing, I need to know how much it costs to see my sin on that cross. Mm -hmm. Because when Jesus was put on that cross, God determined my value. Because all of that was my value. That right there, in the world, if you're going to buy a car, and someone says, hey, I want you to give me $150,000 for this car that's worth $3,000. you would never do it because it's not worth it. If you were to buy a house, and that house, they wanted to get, you wanted $10 million for a house, but it was worth $150,000. You'd never pay the money because it's not worth it. Well, in the world, what's paid for something determines the value of that thing. Then that's what heaven did to purchase me. That, much, that must make me a very great value to the Father. See, we've said that we're worthless and we're worms in the dirt not realizing that that's what Satan is. Satan's a worm in the dirt, and he's worthless. Okay, so according to Todd White, uh, the reason that Jesus died on the cross is because we were just that valuable, and heaven just had to have us because we were just that spanky, and God just had to have us. And heaven went bankrupt, getting us back. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. The Apostle Paul, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become what? Worthless. Worthless. If we were worth dying for, then you have totally redefined grace. That's what makes grace grace, is that we weren't worth dying for. If we were, then that you, you've redefined what grace is. Grace is unmerited favor. We, we don't deserve it. We're not worth it. That's what makes grace so precious. God saved us not because we are great. He saved us because he is great.
Watch this from Benny Hinn and Miles Monroe. We get the mind of God about his will. We pray it. When we pray it, we give him legal right to perform it. Yes. Let me define prayer for you in this show. Prayer is man giving God permission or license to interfere in earth's affairs. In other words, prayer is earthly license for heavenly interference. That's incredible. That is incredible. God could do nothing on earth. Nothing has God ever done on earth without a human giving him access. So he's always looking for that somebody. Always looking for a human to give him power, permission. In other words, God has the power, but you get the permission. God got the authority and the power, but you got the license. So even though God can do anything, he can only do what you permit him to do. God can only do what we permit him to do. Dear friends, I would submit to you tonight that God can do whatever he jolly well wants to do. It is not terribly concerned about whether or not he has our permission to do it. Now, don't take my word for it. Let's go to the text. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. But do you know I actually had a word of faith person look at that verse because I showed it to him. And he said, yeah, but that just means that God can do whatever he wants to do in heaven, not on earth. If he wants to do something on earth, then he has to have our permission. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all of the deeps. Oops. Friends, God can do whatever he wants to do and is not losing a great deal of anthropomorphic sleep over whether or not he has our permission to do it. Watch this from Jesse Duplantis. Friends have frank and open conversations with each other. I've done that with the Lord. I've had the Lord say, uh, Jesse, I've had God come tell me, he said, this is what I'm going to do. I've had the Lord say, what do you think about this? God has asked me for my opinion. God asks Jesse Duplantis for his opinion. Do tell. Now, I don't want to take him out of context, so let's let him finish his thought. I said, well, Lord, since you asked, maybe I'm doing it. He said, no, we can talk frank. What do you think? I said, well, I don't think you ought to do that. He said, why you don't think I ought to do that? I said, well, you know, I, I know you know people more than I do, but you know, Lord, if you just let me, let me do a little bit more work on this individual, I think we can get them to you. He says, okay, go ahead. Do what you have to do. And I tell you what, the Bible says he who wins souls is wise. And he who thinks he can counsel God is a fool. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? Well, I guess it was Jesse Duplantis. You see the unimaginable arrogance of these people. This from Jesse Duplantis. I'm, I'm going to say something will knock your lights off. God has the power to take life, but he can't. He got the power to do it, but he won't. He's bound. He can't. He says death and life is in the power of whose tongue? Yours. You ready for this? You want something to knock your lights off? You choose when you live. You choose when you die. God has the power to take life, but he can't. I think that might come as a bit of a surprise to a number of people in the Bible. King Herod, when God killed him and he was eaten by worms, Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, 
Uh, Charismatics talk about getting slain in the spirit. They were slain by the spirit. Uh, Uzzah, remember Uzzah? Numbers, uh, or Uzzah, whatever, not numbers. Anyway, Uzzah walking along in the, the ark on the cart, being pulled by the oxen, and the oxen stumbled. And in Uzzah, you can see this in your mind's eye, right? I mean, all of us would have done, done the same thing just instinctively without even thinking about it. Just reached up and steadied the ark, and God struck him dead. You think God isn't holy? Who else in the Bible would beg to differ with Mr. Duplantis? Well, now let's think, oh, yeah, everybody alive on the face of the planet, except for eight people, you know, in that little flood thing. I bet they would beg to differ with Jesse Duplantis. I want us now to look at what the faith preachers teach about the person and work of Christ. If we can establish that they preach a different Jesus, we can establish that they do indeed preach a different gospel. Many of the faith preachers hold to what is essentially an Arianistic view of Christ. Arianism was a heresy in the early church, and it basically held that Jesus did not come as God. Jesus came as a man, and he came as a man who had a very close walk with God, but was not actually God in human flesh, that Jesus later kind of became God. This from Creflo Dollar. Creflo Dollar says, and somebody said, well, Jesus came as God. Well, how many of you know the Bible says that God never sleeps nor slumbers? And yet in the book of Mark, we see Jesus asleep in the back of the boat. Jesus came as a man. And at age 30, God is now getting ready to demonstrate to us and give us an example of what a man with the anointing can do. Y'all, please listen to me. Please listen to me. This ain't no heresy. I'm not some false prophet. As a general rule of thumb, if a preacher actually has to tell you that he's not a false prophet, chances are. So Creflo Dollar says because... Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat and God never sleeps or slumbers and therefore Jesus could not have been God. That's ridiculous. Dear friends, when Jesus came to this earth, he came as the God man. Fully God, fully man. Jesus was one person with how many natures? Two. Two natures. And those natures did not intermingle and, and form like a third. It was not the theological equivalent of yellow and blue make green. One person with two natures. And as the God-man, Jesus experienced many of the same things that you and I experience. He got hungry. He got thirsty. And guess what? He got sleepy. It does not mean that he was not God. That is ridiculous. This from, uh, this from Kenneth Copeland. According to Kenneth Copeland, Jesus himself came and gave him this prophecy. Jesus, quote-unquote, said to him, Don't be disturbed when people accuse you of thinking you are God. They crucified me for claiming that I was God, but I didn't claim I was God. I just claimed that I walked with him. He was in me. Hallelujah. That's what you're doing. Blasphemy. Jesus most certainly did claim to be God. Before Abraham was, I am. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Jesus most certainly did claim to be God. And any Jesus that he's preaching who did not claim to be God is not the Jesus of the Bible. If they preach a different Jesus, they preach a different gospel. And a different gospel does not save. Never to be outdone with himself. This also from Kenneth Copeland. And I say this with all respect so it don't upset you too bad, but I say it anyway. When I read in the Bible where he says, I am, I just smile and I say, I am too. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And just as a little interesting, see that guy? That's me. <laughs> I was at that crusade and I just happened to 
I was watching the video and I was like, oh, well, they caught me. So, anyway, watch this from uh, Larry Huck and Paula White. We really begin to understand that, that, that when Jesus Christ paid the price, the first thing that happened after he said it was finished is the veil was rent from top to bottom, signifying that no man could do that. But the price that was paid was there's now no separation so that we have direct access into the Holy of Holies. We understand, according to Hebrews, that Jesus is our high priest Absolutely. and he's the first of many brethren, which means I now come into a priestly anointing. So I now can say that again because I now, don't get it. I now come into a priestly anointing. Jesus is not the only begotten on. Son of God. He is not. I'm a Son of he's God. He's the first fruit. He's the first fruit. He's the first part of many. Jesus is not the only begotten on. Son of God. Can you believe that? Flat out denying that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Have they read John three sixteen? I mean, friends, we're not talking here about the date of the Exodus. You know, we're not talking here about who you think wrote the book of Hebrews. These issues go to the heart of the gospel. What one believes about Jesus Christ will determine where one spends eternity. This is a different Jesus that they're preaching. Different Jesus. And I'm going to say something. It's going to sound a bit odd at first, but please bear with me. It's not enough to just believe in Jesus. It's not enough to just believe in Jesus. Mormons believe in Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus. Hey. Muslims believe in Jesus, but they don't believe in the right Jesus. They have a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible. If they preach a different Jesus, they preach a different gospel. You may as well be Muslim as be word of faith. They have a different Christ. Different Christ. Watch this. This is a video of a man you've probably not seen before. Maybe, but probably not. It's a guy named Seth Dahl. Uh, Seth is on staff at Bethel Church in Redding, California, pastored by Bill Johnson. Uh, this is uh, this is New Apostolic Reformation. This is a this is a twin movement to the Word Faith movement. It's it's everything Word Faith is, even worse, even more emphasis on miracles and signs and wonders and this kind of thing. They're almost identical. There's a little bit of distinction, but they're pretty much identical. Watch this from Seth Dahl. Or say some things that hurt me really bad. Hurt me so bad, messed me up emotionally, mentally, really messed me. Nothing physical, nothing like that. A, a, a pastor I, I really respected said some words and hurt me so bad. And one time I was laying on the floor, actually, it was in this room. I'm laying on the floor, and in, in a vision, in an encounter with God, in a vision, Jesus picks me up and holds me so close that I can't see anything. And he holds me so close. And Jesus starts to weep. And he says, please forgive me. Please forgive me. I said, what are you talking about? Please forgive me. He said, when that pastor hurt you, it's as if I hurt you. Because he's a member of my body. Please forgive me. Sometimes blasphemy is just not a strong enough word. The very notion that the thrice holy, sinless Son of God would come to a wretched, vile, putrid sinner and ask that creature for forgiveness? Unbelievable. 
And this is not something that kind of just slipped past the editors. You notice how the clip began. It began with their logo and their music. They're using this in advertising for crying out loud. They're proud of this. This is a cult. These people are not Christians. Oh, Justin, are you saying they're not even saved? That's exactly what I'm saying. It's exactly what I'm saying. You cannot be indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God and teach these kinds of blasphemies. If they were truly saved, if they were truly indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, then the very first time they uttered one of these blasphemies, the Holy Spirit of God would drop them to their knees under such heavy conviction. And yet they just continue to teach these things with reckless abandon, with apparently no prick of conscience whatsoever. That's not someone indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This from Bill Johnson, the pastor of Bethel Church. Jesus laid his divinity aside as he sought to fulfill the assignment given to him by the Father. He laid his divinity aside. No, he did not. Watch this from Rod Parsley. Because when Naaman obeyed that instruction, the miracle of God was released, just like I'm believing with you right now. Somebody's laying hold on a miracle. I can, I can perceive it. I, I can perceive that virtue is going forth out of me. I feel your faith pulling on me right now. Did you catch that? He said, I perceive virtues going out of me. Now, when we hear that phrase, virtue going out of me, we automatically think of what story in the New Testament? The woman with the issue of blood, right, who was uh, reached out and touched the hem of Jesus' garment. And Jesus said, who touched me? For I, I perceive virtue, King James, or I feel power going out of me. Rod Parsley feels power going out of him. And then he says, I, I feel your faith tugging on me. You feel what? You, Rod Parsley, feel my faith tugging on you. So I guess now Rod Parsley should be the object of our faith. You see the incredible arrogance of these people. Just incredible. Watch this from Todd White. It's not God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So it's the Trinity. It's, it's all three parts. Jesus, you know, he walked and lived as, as a man. And he didn't, he didn't live as God on the earth. The reality of this thing is that Jesus Christ, he pays a price for us to be made right with God. Jesus goes to hell, I believe. He went to Hades, went down and descended into the depths of the earth for three days, and he pays for the sin of mankind. But on the third day, on the third day, he got the keys to the hell, death, and the grave. Got those keys, came up out of there, was resurrected that day. And all of a sudden, everything was about to shift. In just about 60 seconds, Todd White managed to utter three heresies in just one minute. First thing, God, the Godhead is not comprised of parts. Okay, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are not each 33 and one-third part of the Godhead. There's, God is one being in three persons. So he doesn't have the Trinity, right? Number two, Jesus most certainly did live on earth as God. 
He just said that Jesus did not live on earth as God. Yes, he did. If he did not live on earth as God, then he could not have atoned for our sins. And finally, he said that Jesus atoned for our sins in hell. This is the spiritual death of Jesus doctrine. They teach that Jesus did not atone for our sins on the cross. Rather, he atoned for our sins in hell. When he died on the cross, they teach that he then went to hell, suffered, was tortured by the demons, died a spiritual death, ceased to be God, and then had to be reborn. That literally Jesus had to be saved. And that is where the atonement of our sins took place. Not on the cross, but down in hell. The spiritual death of Jesus. Now, why is this such a dangerous doctrine, the spiritual death of Jesus? Well, dear friends, if Jesus died spiritually, then that means he ceased to be God. Because God is spirit, right? God is spirit, must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. So if Jesus died spiritually, then by definition, then that means he ceased to be God. If Jesus ceased to be God even for an instant, then he never was God to begin with. Because God cannot cease to be God. Now, a lot of times we think in terms, well, God can do anything. He's omnipotent, right? He can do anything. Are there things that God cannot do? Yes, there are. There are things that God cannot do. God cannot lie. Not that he won't lie. He can't. God cannot sin. God cannot deny himself. God cannot act outside of his character and his nature. And God cannot cease to be God cannot cease to be God. If Jesus ceased to be God even for an instant, then he never was God to begin with. God cannot cease to be God. Now, uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, a, an issue related to this. There is a, a softer version of the spiritual death of Jesus that I heard growing up in Baptist churches, or Baptist church, but I heard this all the time. Now, we may not take it to the to the extremes that the word faith people do, but I've heard this a lot that when Jesus was on the cross, that that relationship between father and son was completely broken, completely severed for the first time in all of eternity. Um, be real careful with that. We've already established that God cannot cease to be God. He's the same yesterday, today and forever, right? So if Jesus did not cease to be God and yet that relationship when he was on the cross, was severed, just like you would cut a ribbon. Well, now we've got two independent, coexisting gods. We can't have that either. We're not polytheists. We don't believe in multiple gods. We believe in one God and three persons. So what do we do with Jesus' statement, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I've heard this taught a lot, that when Jesus was on the cross, that the, the father turned his back on the son turned his face away and that relationship between father and son was broken severed again like you cut a ribbon but let's look at this jesus is quoting psalm 22 verse 1 now if he is quoting psalm 22 verse 1 not only is he applying that verse to himself but he is also applying the context of the passage to himself so let's look at a little bit fuller context here let's go down some verses same chapter same context verses 19 verse 24 it says but be not thou far from me, O Lord, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither has he hid his face from him, but when he cried unto him, he heard. David had gotten to this point in his life where he felt like God had abandoned him. 
But even though he felt that way, in reality, you see, God had not abandoned him. He says it right here. Be not far from me, O Lord. He is not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither has he hid his face from him. He felt like God had abandoned him. In reality, God had not. And dear friends, I think that there is a, there is a certain mystery that we will never understand about what Jesus experienced on the cross. We'll never understand that fully this side of heaven. Was the agony of the cross the pulling of the beard? Yes. The crown of thorns? Yes. The flagellation? Yes. The nails? Yes. The thirst? Yes. The whip? All of that? Yes. It was that. It was all of that. But it was more than that. When Jesus was on the cross, the full undiluted fury of God's wrath that burns against the sins of his people were poured out on Christ. And Christ drank in every last drop of God's wrath, satisfied. And so, remember, Jesus is one person with how many natures? Two. And I think it may, it is very much the reality, and again, this is, it's, this is getting in where we can't fully understand all of this, this side of heaven. But in his humanity, like David experienced, in his humanity, when the full wrath of God was being poured out on Christ, yes, in his humanity, he felt real estrangement, real separation, real abandonment in his humanity. But not in his deity. Not in his deity. There's a song that we sing, and I love the song. It's a great song. But there's one, one line in the song that if I'm in a church and it's sung, I'll sing everything except this one line. You know where I'm going? <laughs> oh, and what's the title of the song? How Deep the Father's Love. Is that the title? The Father Turns His Face Away. I'll be honest. I have searched high and low for that in Scripture, and I don't find it. What I do find is verse 19, verse 24 says the opposite neither has he hid his face from him but we cried unto him he heard what else did jesus say on the cross father forgive them they know not what they do father into thy hands i commit my spirit jesus was praying to the father on the cross so we know that those lines of communication if you will within the triune godhead were still intact so in his humanity separation yes in his deity, no, you, you can't separate the Trinity. Something else that you'll notice about Psalm 22 is you can read all of Psalm 22. And you know what you will not find one hint of in Psalm 22? No mention of sin. No mention of sin. And Jesus applied that to himself. Why? Because he was sinless. I just marvel at the, the specificity of God's word. The clarity of it. It was the physical death of Jesus that atoned for our sins. Many, many verses we could we could look to to, to support this. Uh, for it pleased the Father that in all, Him all the fullness should dwell. By Him to reconcile all things to Himself. By Him, whether things on earth or in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. For Christ also died for sins how many times? Once, not twice, once for all the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but quickened, made alive by the Spirit. 
much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. It was the physical death of Jesus that atoned for our sins, not a spiritual death. Something that you'll notice about every cult is every cult disparages the cross of Christ, that it somehow was not enough to pay for sins. Mormons disparage it. Jehovah's Witnesses disparage it. And dear friends, Roman Catholicism disparages the cross of Christ. I want to say, uh, as we close, just take five or so minutes to talk about Roman Catholicism because there's a lot of overlap between Word of Faith and Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholic Church disparages the cross. How? Just out of curiosity, raise your hand if you were saved out of the Roman Catholic Church. Huh. Yeah. Several of you? Yeah. Yeah. Praise the Lord. My wife was saved out of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, when Catholics have Mass, you know they call it the sacrifice of the Mass. The reason they call it the sacrifice of the Mass is because they believe it's an actual sacrifice. When they have Mass, the, the priest takes a little wafer, what they call the host, and they've had that thing sitting sitting in the, the goblet, whatever they call it. You have, him, you have the host in the goblet, and you stay up perpetual adoration, and you don't want to leave that thing alone because... Now, I'm not making light of it, it's just their theology. They believe Jesus is in there. They believe that cracker is actually turns into the, to the actual flesh of Jesus. Not symbolically, actually. That it turns into the literal flesh of Jesus, and the wine turns into his literal blood. And the priest takes this wafer, what they call the host, and they believe that Jesus, actually, technically, they believe that the priest commands Jesus to come out of heaven and get into the cracker. And he lifts it up, and he, he, they say in their, in their liturgy that we offer up this victim. Really? Victim? Dear friends, Jesus never was, is not now, nor will he ever be a victim. He is the ultimate victor. His life was not taken. He gave it. But they say we offer up this victim in sacrifice. It is a real sacrifice, not symbolic. They actually call it a propitiatory sacrifice. To put it in layman's terms, when Catholics have mass, they believe that they are killing Jesus. They're slaughtering Christ over and over and over and over every single time Catholics have mass and multiply thousands of churches all around the world every single day they are killing Jesus. What an offense to the gospel. What an offense to what Jesus said, it is finished. And Catholics do not believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Catholics believe you've got to add works to your faith. You've got to go to confession. You've got to confess your sins to a priest who's just as sinful, if not more so, than you are. And you've got to say your Our Fathers and say your Hail Marys and do this and do that. You've got to, you know, do penance and, and you've got to add works to your faith. You've nullified the cross. And Catholics believe when you, when you do die, then you go to purgatory a place that doesn't even exist and have all your other sins burned up that Jesus somehow didn't pay for and you didn't say enough Hail Marys for. It's, it, is a, it is a system of spiritual slavery, spiritual bondage. And their Pope, this is, I found this interesting. You know, this is Pope Francis, their current Pope. They call Pope Francis the humble Pope. Pope Francis is very humble, you see, because he doesn't wear the papal red shoes that most Popes wear. He just wears black shoes, so he's very humble. Uh, you know the titles they give to their Pope? They have three titles for the Pope. Holy Father, 
Holy Father. There's only one Holy Father. They also call him the head of the church. Who's the head of the church? Jesus. And he is the vicar of Christ. The word vicar means substitute. They, they teach that the Pope is the substitute of Christ on earth. Who is the real substitute of Christ on earth? Holy Spirit. Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away, right? For, for the, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit will come. Holy Father, head of the church, vicar of Christ, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they give those titles to the Pope. If you think you are the Holy Father, the head of the church, and the vicar of Christ, you ain't humble. I don't care what color your shoes are. You're not humble. Roman Catholicism is a it's a theological cult. Do we hate Roman Catholics? No, no, no. A thousand times no. We love Roman Catholics. But we should love them enough to tell them the truth. What we hate is the theological system that is Roman Catholicism. Why do we hate it? Because Christ hates it. Because Christ hates whatever is opposed to his gospel. And we should hate what is opposed to the gospel. We should hate what keeps people in spiritual bondage. And we should love our Roman Catholic friends and family members enough to tell them the truth. Roman Catholics, word faith, whatever. Love them enough to tell them the truth. Tonight we'll be looking at some of the more dramatic, uh, spectacular things of the word faith movement. Talk about tongues, interpretation of tongues, people who claim to have been to heaven, how God does and does not speak to us today. So there is a debate within Christianity today as to whether or not the apostolic gifts continue to be in operation. The apostolic gifts, also known as the sign gifts, include tongues, interpretation of tongues, and those are two different gifts, by the way. A lot of people don't realize that, two different gifts. Tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles, and physical healing. There's a position known as continuism. If you are a continuist or a continuationist, that means that you believe that all of the spiritual gifts, including the apostolic gifts, sign gifts, continue to be in operation today. Another way of saying that is you are a charismatic. Even if you don't speak in tongues personally, that is by definition the charismatic position. Now there is another position known as cessationism. But before I define cessationism for you, I wanna give you an example of what cessationism is not. Watch this from Beth Moore. But I wanna be people of the word of God. And so we got a lot of things going in our current religious culture. And we've got two extremes I want to address tonight so that we can understand them. First of all, I want you to look over to this side. We have the religious culture of the extreme that I'm going to call cessationism. Now I'm making up a word with that ism, but you know the word cessation. And it is the word that comes from cease. And this particular extreme teaching in the body of Christ says, all miracles have ceased. For all practical purposes, God no longer works miracles in our day. Well, she's not making up the word, but she is making up the definition of the word. It would behoove Beth Moore before she teaches on something to at least know how to define it. Cessationism is not the belief that God is no longer doing miracles today. If we were to say that, then we'd have to say that God is no longer saving people today because that is the greatest miracle, that of the new birth. Nor is cessationism the belief that God is no longer giving spiritual gifts today. It is simply the belief that God is no longer, the Holy Spirit is no longer giving apostolic gifts 
today. The sign gifts are no longer operative in the church. Now, I am a card-carrying cessationist. And as a cessationist, I fully affirm that the gifts of teaching, mercy, administration, exhortation, giving, hospitality, all of those gifts are very much in operation in the church today. Only the apostolic gifts have ceased. Now, since I opened this can of worms with Beth Moore, I, don't want, I want to give you a few bullet points. Some of the reasons I'm concerned with her. She is very ecumenical. She teaches that Roman Catholicism is within Christianity. We talked about that last night. It clearly is not. But not only does she teach this, but she claims that God gave her a vision, an open vision of the church that includes Roman Catholicism. Well, God did not give her that vision. What do we call people who claim to receive visions and messages from God when God did not give them those dreams and messages and visions? She has very poor hermeneutics. She applies promises that God made to individuals or to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and makes a blanket application for us today as uh, believers. And you just can't do that. That's poor hermeneutics. She regularly takes scripture out of context. She does this all the time, just constantly. Uh, mystical, extra-biblical, divine revelation. She claims that God speaks to her in a direct, quotable sense outside of scripture. And she has known associations, or I should say associations with known false teachers, uh, regularly associates and endorses false teachers. And as just one example, watch this from Beth Moore. I was astonished when I came um, to the ministry today, Joyce, um, what God has used you to do and the magnitude of it. Well, I guess perhaps the place that you get the most pieces that you know no human being could possibly have come out of exactly. it. You have to know God is with you because nobody you could, could have done it. No, no. And I thought, I asked the Lord this morning in my hotel room. I said, you know what? I want, I want to be a blessing to Joyce. I said, I know she's going to be a blessing to me, but how could I bless her? Lord, she, what, what could I do? She, you blessed her in such uh, magnificent ways. And it, what could she possibly um, want or need from somebody like me. And, you know, I thought to myself, I, I don't have uh, much to offer you, but this Joyce Meyer, I offer you my respect. Thank you. I offer you my esteem. And I say to you, you are a mighty, mighty woman of God, and you have run and are running your race well. That I can bring you today. That I have to do. That pretty much speaks for itself, does it not? If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Dear friends, the Bible is not unclear about how we are to deal with false teachers. They are not to be coddled. We are not to endorse them. We are not to enter into spiritual enterprises with them. They are to be marked and avoided. Joyce Meyer is a false teacher, period. And you see... Beth Moore lavishing praise on her. Um, ladies, you know, you don't just have to do a Bible study written by a lady, but if you want to do a Bible study written by a lady, I can commend to you Susan Heck. Uh, her website is withthemaster.com, and she's uh, very sound. Uh, she is the wife of my former pastor when Kathy and I lived in Oklahoma, Doug Heck. But Susan has 26 books of the Bible memorized. Not verses, not chapters, but books. And so she is, um, she really knows her stuff, very sound doctrinally. 
So uh, ladies, you can check her out with themaster.com. Okay, so I wanna begin with a little quiz. Which theological group does the following? Which group do you automatically think of when you see the following behaviors? Erratic, jerking, and shaking. They have uncontrollable laughter. They get slain in the spirit. They prophesy. They claim physical healings. And they speak in tongues. Which group do you automatically think of when you see these behaviors? Pentecostal, charismatic, right? Hindus. Hindus. Does that surprise you? There's a subset within Hinduism known as Kundalini. And people in Hindu Kundalini exhibit the exact same behaviors as do charismatics. You can take video clips of Hindu Kundalini, put them side by side video clips of charismatics, and you literally cannot tell the difference. They look exactly alike. And they speak in tongues in the exact same way that charismatics do. Exactly the same. So what does that tell us? That tells us that just because someone is exhibiting one or more of these behaviors does not necessarily mean that that ability is coming from God. Pagans do it too. Okay? So, dear friends, we cannot interpret the Bible by what we experience. No matter how real an experience may seem, if that experience does not plumb with God's word, then we have exceeded biblical parameters. We've done what Paul said not to do in 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Do not exceed what is written. And when we exceed biblical parameters, we are opening ourselves up to demonic influence and demonic suggestion. We cannot interpret the Bible by what we experience. We must interpret our experiences by the Bible. Okay? All right. Now, uh, I want us to talk about tongues. Kind of give you just a few items here dealing in a general nature with the gift of tongues. We've already discussed tongues are not unique to Christianity. Many Hindus speak in tongues. Uh, even uh, some Buddhists speak in tongues. Even a few Muslims, if you can believe that, speak in tongues. A lot of Roman Catholics speak in tongues. So it's not unique to Christianity. Pagans do it too. Tongues can be practiced in an ignorant, ungodly way. Tongues can be practiced in such a way that it brings attention to the person speaking in tongues rather than glorifying Christ and edifying his church. And this is what was going on in the church of Corinth. In the church of Corinth, Paul, on a second missionary journey, came to the city of Corinth, completely pagan city. Uh, he preached the gospel. A number of people were saved, and Paul started a church there. And he spent about a year and a half with these new believers trying to grow them up and, and uh, mature them. And, and when he felt like they could handle things on their own, Paul then left them and went to other destinations to preach the gospel. Well, Paul may have left a little bit too soon because he got word later from a lady back in Corinth named Chloe, and Chloe informed the Apostle Paul that things had gone awry in the church in Corinth, uh, that there was a group of people within this church who had become very arrogant in their exercise of the spiritual gifts. And it had almost become a contest between them as to who could prove themselves to be the most spiritual. Well, I'm more spiritual than you are because I speak in tongues more than you do. I have the gift of healing more strongly than you do. Look at me. Look how spiritual I am. And they even gave themselves a name. They called themselves the pneumaticoi, which in the Greek means the spirituals. And because of this arrogance, all manner of sin and immorality crept into the church and it just about destroyed the church from the inside out. I mean, they had all kinds of stuff going on in the church in Corinth. And, uh, and it, their arrogance was, was self-aggrandizing. They were trying to bring attention to themselves. And one of the things that they used was speaking in unintelligible, ecstatic gibberish, what charismatics today call tongues. If done in public, in corporate worship, an interpreter must always be present and must always interpret. 
the Apostle Paul says that tongues must be done by two or at the most three, he says, each in turn and let one interpret. Not all at the same time, each in turn let one interpret. Paul says if there is no one there to interpret, let him remain silent. It is not of God. It is false that all believers should speak in tongues. Some churches teach that if you are saved, your salvation will be evidenced by you speaking in tongues. And if you don't speak in tongues, well, then you must not be saved. But that's patently unbiblical. The Apostle Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions here in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, all are not workers of miracles, are they? Uh, all are not apostles, are they? All do not speak in tongues, do they? And clearly, the implied answer to these rhetorical questions is no. No, they don't. So it's patently unbiblical to teach that if you are saved, you must speak in tongues. Now, we don't make that assertion for any of the other spiritual gifts, do we? Have you ever heard someone say, well, if you don't have the gift of administration, you're not a Christian. You know, if that were true, I wouldn't be a Christian. So every Christian does not have every spiritual gift. That's the whole point of the gifts. The Holy Spirit of God distributes the spiritual gifts among the body as he wills to do. Also, tongues were for a sign of judgment. There's just one place in the New Testament that gives us a reason, a function for the gift of tongues, and that's in 1 Corinthians 14, 20 through 22. Paul says that tongues were for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Now, what did Paul mean by that? Did Paul mean that when an unbeliever sees you speaking in tongues, that they will just be so impressed by that ability that they will have to come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord? That's not at all what he meant. And we know that that's not what he meant because in 1 Corinthians 14, 20 through 22, Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 28. Well, what's going on in Isaiah chapter 28? Judgment. Judgment. One of the signs that God was bringing judgment upon Old Testament Israel is that one day the Jews would wake up in the morning and they would look around and there would be a group of people in their midst speaking a foreign language, not unintelligible gibberish, but a foreign language, Assyrian, Babylonian, what have you. And when they saw that, they knew, oh, oh God's about to bring the hammer down. God's bringing judgment. And this is what we see in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, which is related to our next point, the biblical gift of tongues was known languages, not unintelligible gibberish, known languages. But in Acts, in Acts chapter 2, these men began to speak in different languages. In fact, those languages are even listed there in Acts chapter 2, about 15, 16 different languages that are listed there. And that was a sign that God was bringing judgment against unbelieving Israel because Israel had rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They crucified him. And so as a sign of judgment against them, these men began speaking in different languages, and that was a sign that God's salvific gaze, you will, was shifting away from Israel to the Gentiles. And even as we sit here tonight, Israel, in a spiritual sense, uh, in a salvific sense, is still under the judgment of God. God has brought a partial hardening to the nation of Israel. Now, one day, I think Romans 11 indicates that God will return to Israel, but until that time comes, Israel is under the judgment of God, not in a militaristic sense, not in a political sense, but uh, in, a, in a spiritual sense. So uh, I, I told you last night I would give you a demonstration of how to speak in tongues. So uh, here we go. So let's pretend like we are at Grace Community Church in Jerusalem, and we're in the year A.D. 55. Okay, Apostolic age, all of the apostolic gifts are still in operation. We've gathered for worship, and uh, here's what the gift of tongues would have look like so um uh julio can you stand up brother all right so god gives julio the gift of tongues the gift of languages 
and God gives him a message to communicate to us. But instead of speaking it in English, all of a sudden Julio starts speaking it in fluent Swahili. You don't speak Swahili, do you? Okay. So he speaks fluent Swahili, even though he doesn't know Swahili. But there's a problem, because none of us know Swahili either, and so we have no idea what he's saying. Ah, but I just happen to have the gift of interpretation of tongues. And so I can translate what he said in Swahili back into English so we can understand it. And I can do that even though I don't know a word of Swahili either. And then Julio would sit down. Thank you, brother. Oh, uh, Jeremy, can I get you to stand up, brother? So remember, Paul said it must be done by two or at the most three, each in turn, right? And one interpret. And so God gives Jeremy the gift of languages, gives him a message to communicate to us. But instead of communicating it in English, all of a sudden, Jeremy starts speaking fluent um, Afrikaans. Do you speak Afrikaans? He's not a lot. <laughs> he starts speaking fluent Afrikaans, even though he doesn't know Afrikaans. But there's a problem because none of us speaks Afrikaans either. Ah, but I just happen to have the gift of interpretation of tongues. And I can translate what he said in Afrikaans back into English so we can all understand what God said. And I can do that even though I don't know a word of Afrikaans either. And then Jeremy would sit down. And so it would go. Now I ask you, have you ever seen that done in a charismatic church anywhere? Nope. And you never will. I guarantee it. But that is what the gift of tongues would have looked like 2,000 years ago. But you don't see that. What do you see? Well, you see something a little bit more like this. Watch this from Sid Roth. And if you've never prayed in tongues, if you follow my instructions, the anointing is here to do the rest. I can't do it for you, but I can tell you how to pray in supernatural languages. So you start speaking like little baby words and say them as fast as you humanly can when I begin to pray. And when the supernatural will become natural as you take a step, Peter. Raise your hands to the Holy God and begin to pray in a language you've never been instructed. If you don't move your tongue and speak, no one else will do it. In I know you don't know what to say. Make little nonsense syllables up. They're not nonsense. But if the first word's coming out of your spirit, do it faster. I said faster. I said faster. You can do it faster than that. If I had a gun in your room, you'd do it faster. Now, I ask you, does that even remotely resemble what we just saw demonstrated here with Julio and Jeremy? No. Every biblical parameter there is on the gift of tongues, they just broke. And who does that bring attention to? Themselves. Not Christ. Doesn't do anything to edify the church. It just puffs themselves up. Every biblical parameter there is on tongues, they just broke. That is not of God. That is of the flesh. Period. And Sid Roth's not even any good at it. You know, I mean, ooh, ooh, ha, ba, da, ba, ba, ba. I mean, he's not even good at it. I, I've seen other people do it, give it a lot better college try than that. Now, if you ask a charismatic, why do you speak in tongues? Uh, you will probably hear them say something like, well, I speak in tongues because when I pray in tongues, I'm praying in the tongues of angels. And Satan doesn't understand the tongues of angels, so I'm praying in a language that Satan doesn't understand. So you're kind of slipping one in on, under old Lucifer there. Watch this from Sid Roth. The, the reason the devil, and that's who it is, 
does not want you to speak in supernatural languages is because this is the doorway into all of the supernatural. Listen to this. No satanic resistance. Why do I say that? The devil doesn't understand what you're saying. He can't resist you. You got it? So when you pray in the tongues of angels, Satan can't understand what you're saying because you're praying in the tongues of, of angels. Exactly. Satan is, that's what he is. So he's a fallen angel, but he's an angel. That's right. And so if you want to pray in some language that Satan doesn't understand, then the tongues of angels would be the last language I would recommend you praying in. That's what he is. Doesn't make any sense. So where do they get this? They get it from 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become as a sounding brass or a tinkling, clanging cymbal. That's where they get it, right there. Tongues of angels. See, when you pray in tongues, you're praying with the tongues of angels. But that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is using hyperbole. He's exaggerating to make a point. How do you know he's exaggerating to make a point? Because of the next couple of verses. Paul says, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge. Did, did Paul know all mysteries? No. Did he have all knowledge? No. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, did Paul ever rearrange the topography of Israel? No. But do not have love? I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, had Paul given all of his possessions to feed the poor? No. And if I surrender my body to be burned, had Paul surrendered his body to be burned? Obviously not. But do not have love? It profits me nothing. What Paul was saying to these Corinthians you know, it does not matter what you think you can do. If what you do is not built upon a foundation of love. And dear friends, if it doesn't matter what we know, it doesn't matter what we think we can do. If what we do and what we know is not built upon a foundation of love, and I'm not talking about a sappy, kumbaya, touchy-feely kind of a love, a doctrinal love, a love that is built upon biblical doctrine. If, if what we do and what we know is not built upon that, it profits us nothing. That's what he was saying, and this is what the Corinthians were doing. They were bragging about themselves, and they did not have love. And Paul says, it profits you nothing. You have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And by the way, before Paul came to Corinth, these Corinthians were in pagan cults, Apollinarian, Dionysian cults, and as part of their pagan worship, guess what they did? They spoke in unintelligible, ecstatic gibberish as part of their pagan worship. Guess what they used to whip themselves up into these emotional frenzies in which they began to speak in this unintelligible ecstatic gibberish? Sounding brass, clanging cymbals. And so when they read that from Paul, that would have been like a, ouch. They would have known exactly what he was talking about because that's what they had been saved out of. That was part of their pagan worship. And so that would have been like a slap in the face with a cold, wet towel. They knew what he meant when he said that. This was, Paul was rebuking these people. He was rebuking them for the exact same thing that the charismatics do today. Now, a very important question as to whether or not the apostolic gifts continue is this one. Are there apostles today? Are there modern day apostles? Well, in order to be an apostle, you had to meet three requirements. Really, you had to meet four requirements. First one, you had to be a man, but assuming you were of the you know 50 percent of the population that met that requirement there were three others that you had to meet as well number one you had to be a first person eyewitness of jesus christ you had to see jesus raised from the dead with your own two eyes none of those guys are around anymore number two 
You had to be directly appointed by Christ to be an apostle. You didn't run a campaign. Okay, you didn't go down to the local print shop in Jerusalem and have a bunch of campaign signs printed up saying, vote for me, your next apostle. You had to be appointed by Christ to be an apostle. And number three, you had to have the ability to perform the signs and wonders of an apostle. Heal the sick, on occasion, raise the dead. And to be an apostle, you had to meet all three of these requirements. And dear friends, there is not a person alive anywhere on the planet today who meets even one of these requirements, much less all three of them. There are no more apostles today, period, in the discussion. There are no more apostles today. And that has devastating impacts for the charismatic movement, devastating. There are no more apostles today. There are no more apostolic gifts today. And um, there's much more I can flesh out about that, but for time's sake, we'll, we'll move on. And, uh, and also, uh, a couple of points I would make for charismatics and dealing with the gift of tongues, especially because that's kind of what they're, they're known for, that and healing. But, but when charismatics say, well, uh, I speak in tongues and that's just something between me and the Lord. And I've heard a lot of charismatics say, I don't do it in church. It's just something between me and the Lord and my own private prayer closet. I know a lot of people are sincere when they say that, but here's the question I have for them. For what reason does the Holy Spirit give spiritual gifts? Just generally speaking, what are they for? What do they do? They edify what? For the body, right, the church. They edify the church. They are not for our own private use. They're not for our own private use. If you have the gift of mercy, do you go into your private prayer closet and just show yourself mercy? No, you know, we laugh at that. But again, why do we carve out an exception for the gift of tongues? Okay, yeah, all the other spiritual gifts, that's, that's for the church. Okay, but this one, the tongues, I'm, that one I'm using for myself. No, that's not why they were given. Not why they were given. And also, for all the people who say that all of the spiritual gifts are still in operation today, if all of the apostolic gifts are still in operation today, so is the gift of healing. So is the gift of healing. If you have the gift of teaching, you're to be using that gift regularly in the church, right? If you have the gift of mercy, gift of administration, gift of exhortation, hospitality, you're to be using these gifts regularly in the church, right? Where's the person with the gift of healing? Where's that guy? If the Holy Spirit distributes the spiritual gifts among the body as he wills to do, and he does, we know that from 1 Corinthians 12, then why is it that you can go into any doctrinally sound, Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church anywhere in the world, and friends, I've been all over the world, and it doesn't matter what church I go into. You know what I find when I go into these churches? I find people with a gift of teaching. I find people with a gift of mercy. I find people with a gift of administration. I find people with a gift of exhortation. Where's the guy with a gift of healing? Where's that guy? Dear friends, if you can show me even one person anywhere on the planet who has that gift, I will eat my crutch. That person does not exist. Nowhere. Now, don't misunderstand me. Am I saying that God no longer heals people today? I'm not saying that. I believe that God not only can, but does still physically heal people today, but only when it is his sovereign will to do so. But nobody today has the gift of healing. Okay, two totally different things, apples and oranges. God heals someone, he just does it. That's not the same thing as someone having the gift, possessing the gift of healing. Okay. So uh, let us move on. We have to leave some stuff out for time's sake. But, uh, let's talk a little bit about spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. Watch this video clip from Creflo Dollar as he tries to tell us what spiritual warfare is about. Watch this. I, I don't know all of 
the stuff that's going on in your life, but I know a God who has given us the power, and if we will release our authority in faith, we can see things change today. It don't take another two or three months. It takes you getting mad at the devil, mad at the circumstance, mad at the sickness, mad at the lack, and say, I will not take this no more. You don't say, no, dear Mr. Devil. You go and you say, Devil, in the name of Jesus, I done put up with you the last 10 years. Now, my Bible tells me that life is not supposed to be like that. And according to this scripture, and according to that scripture, and over here in this book, and over here in that book, this is how my life is supposed to be. Therefore, in the name of Jesus, I take my authority that I already have, and I command this to be in my life, and I rebuke you, I bind you, I, I, I arrest you, I lock you up, I put you in chains, you get out of my life. Wow. So, through spiritual warfare, we just need to we just need to rebuke Satan and bind Satan, and uh, it's actually probably a pretty good idea that you bind him first and before you rebuke him, because you wouldn't want to rebuke an unbound Satan. So, so bind him first, then you can rebuke him. You know, have you ever wondered all these people going around binding Satan? Somebody sure keeps letting him back out. You know, who's that guy? Maybe you ought to go find the fellow who's letting him back out all the time and bind him first. And then you can go by and say, you know, it just doesn't make any sense, does it? And my Bible says that Satan prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You know, that doesn't sound very bound to me. Now, one day he will be bound, but none of us is going to do it. There's an interesting passage in, in Jude, and uh, I want to read this to you. Jude, beginning in verse 8, Jude says, Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning, unreasoning animals. By these things, they are destroyed. Jude's talking about false teachers. The people that go around binding Satan and rebuking Satan, you know who they are? They're false teachers. That's what false teachers do. Think about that. Michael the archangel did not dare pronounce a railing accusation against Satan. Rather, he said, the Lord rebuke you. And dear friends, if Michael the archangel wouldn't rebuke Satan, probably a pretty good idea you and I not try to do it. Dear friends, there should never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, ever be an occasion in which you talk to Satan. Don't ever talk to Satan. That's what false teachers do. We don't have the ability to bind or rebuke Satan or demons. But you know what we do have? We have access to the one who actually can do these things through prayer. Don't go around talking to Satan. Heaven tourism. Heaven tourism. Lots of people claim to have gone to heaven today and they want to tell you all about their trip to heaven. Heaven tourism is big business. A few of the more popular heavenly tourists include Jesse Duplantis. Jesse Duplantis says that he went to heaven on a cable car, no less. True story. Well, not true story, but you know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> Roberts Liarden. Roberts Liarden, uh, he went to heaven three times before he was even 12 years old, so he apparently was quite the frequent flyer to heaven. Uh, he says that in heaven there is a warehouse full of body parts. And if people only knew that there was this warehouse full of body parts, then uh, the next time you get a quiver in your liver or something wrong with your spleen or something, you can just tell God about it, and he'll go into this warehouse and look up your body part on the shelf and then somehow download it to you. 
years later, after making this claim, it became public knowledge that Roberts Lee Arden was a practicing homosexual. Don Piper, he's not really word of faith. Don Piper's a Baptist. Don Piper says that he went to heaven. He had a car accident in southeast Texas in uh, 1989 or 88, 89, I think. And he said upon impact, he died and he went and he spent 90 minutes in heaven. And he wrote a book by the same title, 90 Minutes in Heaven. Colton Burpo undoubtedly is the most popular of the heavenly jurists. Colton Burpo says that he went to heaven when he was having a surgery when he was a little boy, not even quite four years old. And uh, he and his father, who was a pastor, tragically, wrote a book entitled Heaven is for Real. I take offense at the title of that book, Heaven is for Real. I don't need a four-year-old kid to tell me that heaven is for real. The, the Bible already tells me that, so thanks anyway, but got it. Bill Weiss, he didn't go to heaven. He says he went to hell. But what's really problematic about his story, he says that Jesus took him to hell, spent 23 minutes in hell, wrote a book by the same title, 23 minutes in hell. But what I find so objectionable about this, among other things, is that Jesus took him to hell after he had become a Christian. Why would Jesus take someone to the very place from which he died to save them? Mary Baxter, well, she's been to heaven and to hell. She's been to both places. And she says she spent 30 days in hell, 10 days in heaven, so she kind of got the shorter end of that stick. Uh, she said there's a 40-foot-long uh, piano in, in heaven, big piano. She says there's a 30-foot-long trumpet. She said she saw a 70-foot-tall angel brandishing a 6-foot-long sword. Now, a six-foot-long sword, that's a big sword. Until you remember that she says it was being held by an angel that was 70 feet tall. So if you work the ratios on that, that would be like me standing up here with a six-inch buck knife. You know, so not that impressive. So maybe math was not her strongest subject in school. Todd Bentley undoubtedly is the most deranged of the heavenly tourists. Todd Bentley says that he went to heaven, found himself on an operating table. I'm not real sure why heaven would have a need for an operating table, but apparently there is one up there. And he was on this operating table, and there were four angels, two in, on each side, dressed in gleaming white, and they proceeded to strap him down, feet and hands, so that he couldn't move. And then they got out a miter saw. You can't make this stuff up. They got out a miter saw, and they cut him open from the base of his neck all the way down past his belly button. All of his insides started uh, popping out, gushing out. And then they started to stuff him full of white boxes. You can't make this stuff up. And he says the white boxes were full of different spiritual gifts. He's, he actually said one of the boxes had the gift of discernment in it. I think that box must have been empty. There are a lot of problems with all of these accounts. There are inter-contradictions. In other words, what one heavenly tourist reports about heaven contradicts what another heavenly tourist reports about heaven. So logically, they cannot all be true. There are intra-contradictions. Not only do they contradict each other, they even contradict themselves, oftentimes. Biblical problems, theological problems, and then we will say something about their motives. Uh, just a couple of examples of the inter-contradictions. Don Piper says that people in heaven do not have wings. He's very clear about that. However, Colton Burpo says people in heaven do have wings. Well, somebody's not telling the truth. Don Piper says people in heaven have no age. They're just ageless. However, Colton Burpo says they appear to be in their late 20s. Jesse Duplantis says that there are little disembodied baby spirits flying around the throne room of God. Mary Baxter, however, says that babies grow up and even attend classes. There's a school in heaven. Uh, Jesse Duplantis was having a conversation with Jesus and of that verse in which Jesus says, I will wipe away every tear. Jesus told Jesse, he said, Jesse, those are tears from 
my eyes that I'll wipe away. However, Mary Baxter had the exact same conversation with Jesus, and he said, no, those are the tears of the people that I wipe away. Well, they can't both be true. They even contradict themselves, intra-contradictions. Watch this video clip of Colton Burpo as he's being interviewed on Fox News about his trip to heaven as to whether or not he remembers what happened to him in heaven. This was recorded April the 8th, 2014. Watch this. Colton, you're 14 now. Do you still have a conscious memory of this experience? Well, of my hospital stay and all the events leading up to it, um, that's a little foggy, but my experience in heaven is very vivid. So Colton says, I don't really remember much about being in the hospital. That's understandable. He was not even four years old yet. But he says his memory of heaven is still very vivid. Watch this interview as Colton is asked the exact same question just three weeks later on TBN. Do you remember those first visions that you saw of heaven? Well, I will have to say, um, it, my, my thoughts of heaven aren't as crisp as they used to be. Um, it's been 10, 11 years since it's happened. So um, there's been a lot of time in between that. I mean, it's hard to remember what you did when you were four. Yeah. So, um... so on April the 8th, his memory of heaven is still, quote, very vivid. But just three weeks later, it appears as though his memory took a nosedive and his memories of heaven just aren't as crisp as they used to be. Forgive me if I do not believe him. We're only talking a difference of three weeks here. He's even wearing the same shirt. He's a liar. He's a liar. Here's another liar. Don Piper, author of the book 90 Minutes in Heaven. Don Piper can't keep his story straight either. This from his book on page 33. Don Piper says this. I did not see God. I saw no luminous glow that might have indicated his divine presence. Don Piper in his book says that he saw a lot of people that he knew in heaven. He saw his old high school buddy who died at an early age. He saw his great-grandmother Hattie. He said he saw his grandfather who was in heaven, and he describes him as still having his, quote, big banana nose. And so he saw a lot of people that he knew in heaven, but there's one person he did not see. He said he did not see God. This book came out in the year 2004. It seems as though his story has changed a little bit. Watch this video clip of Don Piper from just seven years later, 2011. Of drinking that in and, and, and absorbing how great the mansions were and then i began to look up through the gate and i could see this kind of pinnacle in the middle of the city it's kind of a hill high and lifted up there's a river flowing down the side of this well it's the river of life and it's coming down the side of this mountain or hill if you will and at the top of that is the brightest light i've ever seen and i know who that is it's the lord high and lifted up this is his city now wait a minute on page 33 in his book, he said he did not see God. Not only did he not see God, did not even see a luminous glow that would have indicated where he was. But now he says he did see God way down there up on top of the hill. He said it was the brightest light I'd ever seen, and I knew who that was. It was the Lord high and lifted up. Which is it? The title of your book is 90 Minutes in Heaven, and you can't remember whether or not you saw God? That's a pretty big deal. That's a pretty big deal. He's a liar. He's a liar. You know what I think has happened? I think it's been a while since he's read his own book. I mean, literally, I, I, he's gone on more and more interviews, radio, television interviews. He's gone on speaking tours. And as the years have gone on, his stories become more and more embellished. And I think he's forgotten what's in his own book. He's a liar. Liar. Another problem is that all of these accounts add to Scripture. They all give us details about heaven 
that are not recorded in the Bible. For example, Colton Burpo, Heaven is for Real. Colton Burpo, in his book, informs us that people in heaven have wings. People in heaven have wings. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Because the Bible doesn't say anything about people in heaven having wings. And then he says that the angel Gabriel sits at the Father's left hand. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Because the Bible doesn't say anything about Gabriel sitting at the Father's left hand. Also, Colton Burpo informs us that Jesus is galloping around heaven on a multicolored horse. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Because the Bible doesn't say anything about Jesus riding around on a multicolored horse. Burpo also informs us that the Holy Spirit is blue. The Holy Spirit is blue. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Because the Bible doesn't say anything about the Holy Spirit being blue. What is the Holy Spirit? A smurf? Yeah, so we've got all this new information about heaven that is not recorded in Scripture. Now, if it is true, and these people really are going to heaven, and they're giving us accurate information about what heaven really is like, if people really do have wings, if Jesus really is riding around on a multicolored horse, if the Holy Spirit really is blue, if that's really the way it is, then theoretically, we should add all that information to this book. There's just one problem with that. This book says do not add to this book. Watch this from Jesse Duplantis. I walked in my study to pray as I normally do. I have a habit of saying, hello, Jesus. And he says, hi, Jesse. It's a first name basis. I walked into that study and something was wrong, Pastor Olsen. I sensed it. And it wasn't with me. Everything was going great. Everything was fine. So I began to pray like I normally prayed, and the Lord began to minister to me, and I ministered to him. Finally, I said, something's wrong. Lord, something's wrong. And it's not with me. Then I realized. I said, Lord, somebody hurt you today? Somebody hurt you today? You're not acting like you normally act. Somebody hurt you today. The Spirit of the Lord spoke to me. He said, you know me, don't you? He said, my children have disobeyed. See, we use the terminology, we grieve the Holy Spirit so loosely. You hurt him. His capacity to hurt is greater than yours. His capacity to love is greater than yours. I said, somebody hurt you today, Lord. I said, listen, I'm going to cancel all my appointments today. I'm shutting it down. And I'm going to praise you and I'm going to love you and i'm gonna rejoice and honor you and call your name hosanna i'm gonna stay here for lack of a better word god to say till you feel better and i stood in that study and i praised god and i shouted and i cried and i loved the lord and i said come here come here let me hug you come here and i just loved you and honored him and it was about an hour and a half and i heard him go Thank you. You can go back to your appointments. You bless me. The very fact that these people have not been struck dead on the spot is a testimony to the forbearance of God. 
That's why I said last night, these people aren't Christians. You, you can't be indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God and teach such things. The Apostle Paul wrote about a man who went to heaven. There were three men in the New Testament who were allowed a glimpse into heaven. Stephen, right before he was stoned, Acts chapter 7. Very brief glimpse, but then he was stoned. John, who wrote the book of Revelation, by far the most detailed account that we have of, of heaven. But he was writing inspired authoritative scripture, so that's on a level all of its own. And the only other one is Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know, or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. God knows. Was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which man is not permitted to speak. The Apostle Paul was speaking of himself. Now, why does he refer to himself in the third person? The reason he does that is because that is how humbled he was by what he had experienced. He did not even want to refer to himself in the first person. He used the third person. And even with that level of humility, God still gave him a thorn in the flesh to humble him even further, to keep him from exalting himself, Paul said. And notice, too, what do we know about what the Apostle Paul saw and heard while he was in heaven? Nothing. We have no idea what he saw. We have no idea what he heard. Why? Because he said he heard words that are inexpressible that man is not permitted to speak. Paul didn't even want to talk about this. But his apostolic authority was being questioned by some back in Corinth. Are you really an apostle? You know, we don't think you're an apostle. You don't look like an apostle. You know, we have apostles here. You know, and his false teachers back in the church of Corinth were undermining his authority. And it's finally like the apostle Paul had just finally had enough of it. And it's like, he says, you question whether or not I'm an apostle? I know a man. He didn't even want to talk about this. Contrast that level of humility with Jesse Duplantis and Colton Burpo and Don Piper and all these others who, who claim they've been to heaven and they just can't wait to tell you about everything they saw, everything they heard while they were in heaven. Dear friends, if the Apostle Paul was not allowed to tell us what he saw and heard in heaven, I seriously doubt that any other Yahoo would be allowed to do so. Especially when they go on speaking tours and they make a career out of their trip to heaven. The exact opposite of what you see with the Apostle Paul. Next time somebody tells you they've been to heaven, don't believe them. Don't believe them. They are either flat out lying or they are seriously self-deluded. And you know... Something important is missing from all of these accounts. You could read 90 Minutes in Heaven from cover to cover, and I have. You could read Heaven is for Real from cover to cover, and I have. You can go watch the movies from start to finish that they made off of both of these books, and I have. And you'll hear all about Grandfather's Big Banana Nose, and you'll hear all about Colton Burpo saying how Jesus helped him with his homework and all this kind of nonsense. But do you know what you will not read or hear? The Gospel. It's not there. So let me get this straight. You've been granted the magnanimous privilege of going to heaven. But you don't bother to tell anybody how to get there? Dear friends, if they really had been to heaven, they would be so consumed with the holiness of God, the, 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 
the coming judgment, they would be so consumed with the urgency of the gospel, they would be doing nothing but preaching the gospel. They wouldn't be wasting their time telling you what their grandfather's nose looked like. These people are liars. They're liars. And the popularity of these books is, is a sad testimony to how undiscerning so many people who claim to be our Christians are today. We have to be careful in ascribing motives, but it's hard to ignore the obvious. There's a lot of money to be made in going to heaven. These books have sold multiple, multiple millions of copies, and, and these numbers are even old now. They're far bigger than what these numbers are. Let's just say they get a dollar off each book. Let's say they get 50 cents. A lot of money to be made in going to heaven. That doesn't even count the movies, what they got off the movies. That doesn't count what they make off of their careers and going from church to church to church deceiving people. A lot of money to be made going to heaven. This is Jesse Duplantis's parsonage. His parsonage. I took this picture. That's my mirror there in the corner. 35,000 square foot parsonage. Got to live in something, I guess. A lot of money to be made going to heaven nowadays. The last word on this issue we will give to Dr. Steve Lawson, who has not gone to heaven. Not yet. This from Steve Lawson. John 1 verse 18 says, no one has seen God at any time. You know what that literally means? No one has seen God at any time. It means exactly what it says. It says what it means. If you ever hear someone come up to you and say, hey, I've seen God, just write them off as a nut. Okay. Now, our, uh, our final little uh, subtopic tonight, hearing from heaven. How do you know when God is speaking to you? How do you know the voice of God? Lots of people claim to hear God speak to them. And uh, people say this all the time. And I've had a lot of people come up to me and say, Justin, you know, God has spoken to me and he's told me such and such. You know, God told me to tell you that you need to do such and such. Pastor, God spoke to me and he told me to tell you that our church needs to go this direction. A lot of people out there claiming that God speaks to them. Have you ever heard someone say that? God spoke to me and said so and so. And, and it kind of makes you wonder, what's wrong with me? You know, I, I don't hear God talk to me like that. Are these people more spiritual than I am? Is there something wrong with my walk with God? I, I don't hear him talk to me like that. Am, am I not even saved? You ever had those thoughts? Well, let's look at this a little bit. Let's look at this. Give you a few examples of, of this. Um, do you know what I think has probably been the single largest reason that charismatic theology has been introduced in at least theoretically non-charismatic circles, churches, Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. Came out in the early 90s. I mean, it was just going like gangbusters and, and it's still popular. Churches still do this study. Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. Henry Blackaby writes, he says, if you have trouble hearing God speak, you are in trouble at the very heart of your Christian experience. And there is much in this book about hearing the voice of God. And he says, if you have trouble hearing God speak, you're in trouble at the heart of your Christian experience. So apparently hearing God speak to you is very important. Very important. Uh, Robert Morris says that he hears God speak to him. Watch this from Robert Morris, pastor of Gateway Church. But if you have a, a thought that God doesn't speak anymore, 
I really don't mean this condescending. I mean it the way I'm saying it. I feel so sorry for you. That you have a personal relationship with someone who never speaks to you. I don't know how personal that is. So if you don't hear God speak to you, then you really don't have a personal relationship with him. That's just not very personal. So these people claim to hear God speak regularly. This from Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels writes in his book, he says, One day a few summers ago, I decided to spend an afternoon alone with God. I hopped on a boat, headed out on the lake, and prepared to hear meaningful words from heaven. I sat there for an hour and heard nothing. Sat there for a second hour and heard precisely nothing. Partway through hour number three, I thought, I love being on the water, but what's with the silence, God? So apparently God talked to him a lot, and just for some reason wasn't in, in this season. So I was going through a tough time at Willow Creek and just desperately needed a little encouragement from above. Just as I was ready to haul up the anchor and motor back toward the harbor, I saw a Bud Light beer can float by. I stood there staring at the can, wondering, is this a message from God? If so, what could it mean? Am I supposed to drink Bud Light? Am I supposed to tell my congregation not to drink Bud Light? Is there a message inside the can? This is a pastor. And he thinks God is sending him messages through Bud Light beer cans floating by his bass boat? How are you supposed to make sense out of this? I mean, so every time you see something that may be just slightly out of the ordinary, that that's somehow that's God trying to get a message to you? How are you supposed to make sense out of this? How are you, this is just nonsensical. This from, uh, this from Beth Moore. Beth Moore writes in her book, When Godly People Do Ungodly Things, she says, I am being as honest as I know how to be when I say that I did not write these pages by simple preference. I wrote them because had I not, the rocks in my yard would have cried out. What God does with what he has required is his business. I entrust this message entirely to the one who delivered it while I sat bug-eyed. So Beth Moore apparently was just this passive recipient as God downloaded information to her. And if she had not written it, she said the rocks in her yard would have cried out. She just sat passively bug-eyed. Boy, she's got a really close relationship with God, doesn't she? That's never happened to me. I can guarantee you that. Never. Um, I'm going to show you kind of an extreme example. I showed this to Jeremy and Ginger last night. Um, watch this from Sidroth. Hello, Sidroth here. Welcome to my world, where it's naturally supernatural. I have read of the great men and women of faith. One in particular intrigues me so much. His name, Smith Wigglesworth. He had some of the most outrageous miracles I ever heard of in my life. Uh, let me give you one example. Some parents had a two-month-old baby dying in the hospital. The parents kidnapped the child, took the child to a Smith Wigglesworth meeting, and Smith looks at the child, looks at the parents, and says, can I do what God tells me to do? Well, what would you do if you were the parents? The child's dying anyway, right? He takes the baby two-month-old, throws the baby against the wall. <laughs> the baby. Then the baby's on the floor. He have you ever seen someone play soccer? Have you ever seen them uh, kick a soccer ball? He does that with the baby. The baby falls into the congregation. 
No crying. Is it dead? 100% healed. No crying. When I saw that, and I, I saw it as it was airing live uh, last year, even for me, that, that shocked me. Even if, of all the things I've seen, that, that shocked me. And I guarantee you that there are enough, there are a lot of people in the charismatic movement who would just be dumb enough to try something like this. Because one of the charismatic mantras, what God does for one, he'll do for you. And so, I mean, the, the very fact that they aired this is inherent proof that there are people dumb enough to believe this. He's, he's talking about it. And so you got, a, you got people watching this at home and they're thinking, well, what God does for one, he'll do for me. My kid's sick. My neighbor's kid is sick. Maybe I'll go throw him up against the wall. Shocking. Shocking. Now that may be extreme, at least in our circles. But I want to show you something that's not nearly as extreme, that is extraordinarily popular, even in our circles. Uh-oh, Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. This is the hottest-selling devotional book on the market today. It is light years ahead of everything else out there and has been for several years. This is no ordinary devotional book. I'm going to take excerpts from Jesus Calling and put it on the screen, copied and pasted, no editorial comments from me, word for word. Sarah Young says, During the same year, I began reading God Calling, a devotional book by two anonymous listeners. These women practice waiting quietly in God's presence, pencils and papers in hand, recording the messages they receive from Him. God Calling is a book that was written back in the 1930s by two anonymous female mystics. We don't know who these ladies were, but... Um, we have their book, and I actually have a copy of it. Uh, but these women, they were mystics, and they claimed to learn how to tune in to the frequency of God. And so it's like they, after enough practice, they tuned in to just the right frequency. And when they hit just the right frequency, God started calling them, and they wrote down what he said. This was Sarah Young's inspiration for Jesus calling. Sarah Young says, I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. You see, the Bible just was not enough for Sarah Young. And dear friends, that is where so many people who claim to be Christians are today. I have a real issue when I hear someone say something like that. Well, yeah, the Bible is good, but, but I need something more. I need something more than the Bible. I need God to speak to me. I need to hear his voice. I need something more than the Bible. Here's my question. Have you completely mastered this book? Have you squeezed every drop of truth there is to be squeezed out of this book? From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, you have mastered it. There is nothing else that you can possibly get out of this book. You, you've exhausted it. If the answer to that question is no, and it is, because all of us, we could spend a thousand lifetimes studying this book and just not even scratch the surface of it. So unless you've mastered everything in this book, please do not tell me that the Bible is not enough. You don't even understand what you've got in black and white right in front of you. Sarah Young says, I decided to listen to God with pen in hand, writing down whatever I believed he was saying. Houston, we have a problem. So just like the ladies who wrote God Calling and they tuned in to just the right frequency, Sarah Young tuned in to just the right frequency and Jesus started calling her and with pen in hand she wrote down what he said. 
If that is what she is doing, then you know what she's doing? She's writing scripture. That's what she's doing. If Jesus is speaking to her and she's writing down what he said, she's writing scripture. She's adding to scripture, exactly. And, and so are all of the people who say, God spoke to me. God spoke to me and said, quote, da 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 Well, if that's really what's happening, then whatever God says to you, I mean, if he's speaking in a direct quotable sense, whatever God is saying to you, then that should be just as authoritative as any verse in this book. Because God cannot speak less authoritatively on one occasion than he does on another. If God is speaking, God is speaking. And whatever he says should be just as authoritative as any verse in this book. So whatever God says, you know what we should do? We should add it to this book. There's just one problem with that. This book says do not add to this book. God cannot speak less authoritatively on one occasion than he does another. God cannot speak in the Bible and really, really, really mean it. But when he speaks to us today outside of the Bible, he, he still means it, but he doesn't mean it quite as much as he meant it here. How does that work? If God is speaking, God is speaking. Um, this from Beth Moore. This from a, a tweet from last year. She says, there's a time to give up and a time to keep trying. Sometimes the time to keep trying feels like a whole like, lot like time to give up, blah, blah, blah. The only, the only difference is the still small voice of the Holy Spirit within you saying, try again, blah, blah, blah. So this still small voice, we hear this all the time, that God is speaking in a still small voice. Do you know what the still small voice is in 1 Kings chapter 19 that God gave to Elijah? That was not some inner impression. Read it in 1 Kings chapter 19. It was an audible voice, not inside his mind, not internal. It was external to him. It's not some inner impression in his head. It was an audible voice outside of it. In fact, it says that Elijah walked out of the cave to hear it. It's not some inner impression. Not at all. This from Robert Morris. Make sure this is right. All right, so John chapter 10, look at verse 1. We're talking about we're sheep, and we can hear God. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, now watch this carefully, and the sheep, watch, hear his voice. Can you just say those three words? Hear his voice. It does not say sense his impressions. And I'm not saying that God doesn't give us impressions. I just simply am literally blown away. And, and when I say that, again, I'm not saying condescendingly because I used to be of the theological persuasion that believed that God didn't speak anymore. And I'm shocked that I could have ever believed that. That he's just, just has chosen not to speak anymore since he wrote us a letter. And we have his word, but now he doesn't communicate personally to his children. I'm just shocked that I could have ever thought that way. Sad. So John 10 is one of the places that they go to. My sheep hear my voice. We as sheep hear the Savior's voice. Well, I want us to look at this. It's in John 10, 3, but the, the really go-to passage is John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And they say, there, see, there it is. Jesus speaks to his sheep, we're a sheep, and we're supposed to hear his voice. 
and that's God speaking to us today in still small voices or hunches or whatever. That's not what this verse is talking about. Let's look at this in context. Beginning of verse 26. Jesus says, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. So right there, you immediately see the context. This is not talking about God telling you where to go to have lunch one day. You do not believe. This is, this is salvific. And then Jesus says, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This is not talking about God speaking to you, telling you where to go have lunch or where, where to go to college or, you know, what kind of car to buy. Or as Charles Stanley recently said, where to go get his Thanksgiving Day turkey. This is salvific. This is before we are converted, before we're converted, we are sheep. We're lost sheep, but we're sheep. And we're wandering out there in life's pasture, minding our own business, grazing, and all of a sudden we hear this call. We hear a voice and we perk our heads up and we see the shepherd, Christ, and we go to it. My sheep hear my voice. This is the effectual call of salvation. This is Jesus giving to us eternal life. I mean, he says it right there. I give eternal life to them. Not tell them where to go have lunch. What a, what a terrible trivialization of such a beautiful passage of scripture. And he says they will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. Jesus gives life to his sheep and he holds them in his hand. This is also a beautiful passage for eternal security. And as if Jesus' hand was not strong 